0: Good morning and welcome again to In Town Church. We're so glad you're in worship with us. And it's a privilege to worship with you and to be back in the pulpit this morning. We're going back into our study. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, Steve reintroduced us to the the narrative that we've been looking at for well over a year in the book of Luke. And we're going to continue that as we come to Easter and conclude as this gospel narrates the end events of Jesus' life. But this morning, we had Jesus before the judges, and we're going to read now in our gospel reading. You can follow along in your bulletin. This is Luke 22 and part of 23. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? He replied, You say that I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose. And led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priest and to the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted, He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee, and he has come all the way here. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would bless this reading, this teaching of your word. Would you let it drift into the back parts, the deep parts of our heart and our mind, those recesses that we try to hide and keep to ourselves. Father, you in this passage, it's clear that you want not just parts of our heart, but all of it, and yet in giving that up, in submission, that's the way to true liberation, to true freedom. Lord, I pray that you would take each of us there this morning, whether it's one small step towards you from the outside looking in, trying to recognize and determine if you really are who you say you are, or whether we've been in your church and in belief for many, many decades. Lord, let us step towards you, just as you have stepped towards us in this gospel reading. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are slight variations of emphases in the gospel accounts of this trial and of his being before the judges, being before, first of all, the chief priests and the elders, what we'll call the council the Jewish leadership, religious authority, and then before Pilate. And there's various emphases. Luke here only includes Jesus' testimony, what he says about himself as he is asked. But Matthew and Mark have other witnesses present that give testimony by twisting Jesus' words. And it shows in, that, in those accounts at least a little bit more about how much of a sham this whole trial was. It was a, a kangaroo court. The outcome was determined at the outset, and it was to find guilt. And because the penalty for blasphemy was death, it's not only a miscarriage of justice, but this is a murderous lynching. Imagine yourself in Jesus' place. Imagine being in that courtroom where those questioners, those judges, got to render judgment over you that would lead ultimately to your death. And It doesn't come out in our passage, but in other accounts, he had also been mocked throughout the night. He had been beaten. And sometime during the night, Peter, his most trusted disciple, one of them at least, his good friend, denies him, says, I never knew the man. I don't know what you're talking about. His friends scatter, and there he stands solo before these judges. The conclusion is predetermined, no matter what his responses are. Now, maybe it's hard to understand. Most likely, none of us have been in that situation where we are standing before a judge that holds the power of life or death over us. But haven't we all been in relationships sort of like that, where we know that the outcome of this relationship is now predetermined, that someone has us under their thumb, someone has us in a box, and we can't get out of it, no matter what we say or do. They're going to think negatively about us forever, most likely. And it's frustrating. But what if they could kill you? What if they had you in a box and no matter what you said or did, that you were going to die? Jesus doesn't try and reason with them. He doesn't try and plead with them that, oh, you've misunderstood. In fact, he knows they've understood quite well, at least the Jewish council. He doesn't plead with them, and perhaps even more stunning, if you believe that Jesus is God incarnate, what is most astounding is that he doesn't call down curses upon these people. What he does say is that you've got it all backwards. You've inverted the situation. Do you remember in science class when you were in high school or maybe middle school or maybe you're in high school now and the the microscopes might be a little bit different, but in my day... When you looked at a microscope, the slide, it was turned around. It was upside down, and I never got used to that because when you reach down to move the slide around to see what's going on, it moves in the opposite direction. It's upside down. Anyone standing as an observer at this trial would see Jesus on trial, and they would conclude that he is the one in the dock. That Jesus is the one going to death, that he is the one on trial. But if you pull out your microscope, if you look at the details, if you look at what Jesus is saying, it's exactly, it's exactly inverted. It's upside down. Those who are conducting the trial are actually the ones on trial. And the one in the dock, Jesus, is actually the judge over all the world. Those who claim to be working on behalf of God, the religious establishment, the religious superstructure, the religious authorities, they are the ones who oppose God's real purposes. And his purposes are being brought to completion by the very ones who say they are opposing it, at least as it concerns Jesus. With a microscope, Jesus is not the one ultimately on trial, but it's the judges. And what Jesus is saying, in essence, is... Take heed of yourself because I'll be back. Jesus will come back after this trial. We see three different interpretations of Messiah in this passage, three different takes on Messiah. We see a malignant Messiah, we see a benign Messiah, and then finally we see a sitting Messiah. Now what do I mean by malignant? A malignant Messiah What I mean is that he's subversive, that he's a disturbance, that he is a cancer to the religious authorities' view of religion and their approach to God. And they deal with him as such. But to see why they were so threatened by him and why we should be, we have to look at Jesus's answer. We have to see the way that he responds to their question of, are you Messiah? And what he does is he combines elements of these two passages, two of which we read earlier, Psalm 110 and Daniel 7, and he squishes them together. And maybe you say, well, so what? It sounds sort of innocuous to us. What does he mean? It doesn't seem threatening to our ears, but the council of priests and elders knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. He knew exa- they knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. The Messiah that comes out in Psalm 110 and throughout the Old Testament Bible is this powerful figure who is going to come and sit on the throne of David and come and rescue Israel. He's going to be charismatic. He's going to be politically and militarily powerful. But in the Jewish mind, a human, this Messiah is going to come. And Jesus is saying, is that person that David was talking about in Psalm 110 is me? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He's taking that on himself, that he is the one who is coming to make all of Israel's enemies, all of God's true people's enemies, a footstool for his feet. But then the Son of Man, the Son of Man is this enigmatic figure throughout the Hebrew Bible and it means various things, but he picks Daniel 7, where it's a very particular image that the Son of Man comes to earth from the clouds of heaven to judge the world. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus is going to come literally like an airplane out of the skies through the clouds, nor does it mean that heaven is a particularly cloudy place, which would be a big bummer for us Portlanders. <laughs> what it does mean is that He is coming from the glory and being and power and judgment seat of God himself, that he is, in fact, God incarnate. And what these council of elders understand is that what Jesus is claiming is, you remember Psalm 10? You remember Daniel 7? That's me. It's not two separate people. It is God incarnate. It is God taking up flesh, and I am now fulfilling all that those prophecies pointed to throughout the Old Testament. He's a far bigger, far different Messiah than anyone present had bargained for. A few weeks ago, I turned 40 years old, and I know I probably look older, but I'm only 40, and I went and had a physical. And I think I'm a reasonably healthy person, but waiting on the blood work to come back in the mail was still a bit anxious. I was wondering, well, maybe they discovered something really bad, and it was fine. I got you know, generally a good report. But I remember thinking, what if it's bad? And there was some anxiety related to that. Now, how do we respond if it is really terrible news? How do we respond if we go to our doctor and they say, well, I found a lump, I found a spot, I found a tumor? That's true anxiety. And what we are waiting for as the reports come back, if they do a biopsy, is one of two words. It's either benign or it's malignant. Now, benign tumors are no picnic, right? Because they may require surgery, but they're not life-threatening in the same way that a malignant tumor is. And you breathe a deep sigh of relief when you hear it's benign. But if you hear it's malignant, the doctor comes in the room with that sullen look and you know what they're about to say and your whole world changes in an instant. All of your relationships now take on a different meaning. Your relationship with work changes. Your relationship with money, your relationship, and how you think about the future changes because you have something inside you that is growing and perhaps metastasizing inside other organs, and your whole life changes. And what is your priority? Kill it. Get rid of it. Push it out. Everything that it takes to get rid of this, even drinking poison, which is sort of what chemotherapy is, I'll do it. I'll drink poison in order to get rid of of this cancer. What does the religious council do when they understand what Jesus is saying? When they hear his answer, they go berserk. This doesn't come out clearly in Luke. In Luke, they just say, why do we need any more testimony? In other words, they didn't mistake what Jesus was saying. The reason they brought him in has now been confirmed. But in Matthew and Mark, the high priest, tears his clothes when he hears Jesus' response. This is one of the, the the signs of highest outrage and horror in the ancient Palestine. When someone would tear their clothes, it was utter outrage, and they spit on him and beat him in the middle of the trial. Now, think with me. Jesus comes and he preaches justice. He preaches mercy. He preaches the special status of Israel. He preaches in a way that cares for public and private morality, and he himself was of the highest ethical quality and character. All of these things that these judges supposedly held dear, and yet what do they say? We have found this man subverting our nation. Jesus, this person of utmost highest character, is subverting the nation. They recognize, friends, Jesus' all-inclusive claims. He was dangerous. He was cancerous. And we, if we let him in, our whole system has to change. If we let him in, he's going to infect the whole system. He is a systemic cancer, and we have to get rid of him. They saw him for who he really was. And so therefore, Jesus was a malignant Messiah to the religious leaders. He couldn't be co-opted into the present system. He had to be excised. He had to be cut out. He had to be done away with. Why was he a threat after all? He does two things quickly. One is he tears down the human systems of exclusion and reward. Those are two points. He tears down the human systems of exclusion and reward. Exclusion. Jesus is of the highest moral character, and yet who does he associate with? Where do we find him most of the time in the Gospels? It's hanging out with sick people, with adulterers, with drunkards, with gluttons, with partiers, with those who have no business laying claim to being part of the kingdom of God. Jesus, God incarnate, goes and embraces those people over and over and over. Those who don't fit in, those whose moral record was utterly bankrupt, those who did, in fact, defile the nation. And Jesus, by his actions, by his presence, by breaking bread with them, by entering into their home, says that these are the people who were closest to God's heart. And the good religious people say, crucify him. Crucify him. Jesus' religion, his approach to God, hurts. It requires surgery at the very center of who we are, because what Jesus comes and says to these people, what he comes and says to you people and me, is that we have to lay down our biases. We have to excise our prejudice. We have to cut out and do surgery upon our critical spirits, upon our judgmentalism, and that hurts. It may be okay for Jesus to say, I would like you to go down the street and deliver this meal to so-and-so, and Frankly, those are great things to do. It's a whole different ball game when Jesus comes and says, you must forgive this person who has hurt you deeply. You must stop carrying around critical spirits. You must stop this air of judgmentalism because I have embraced all of those people that you supposedly stand above and judge. That takes surgery, and surgery is no fun. We have to forgive those people that we've put in the box, and we have to forgive those people who have put us in the box. He tears down the human systems of exclusion on which the religious systems of that day were based, and he tears down the human system of reward. Jesus is malignant to religious people, maybe most of all, because we have the most to lose. If we just let anyone in, then what does that say about our system? What does that say about us? If anyone can get into this club that we've really strived hard to be a part of, then what does that say about my striving and my accomplishments, about all the external validations that I've piled up over the years, about all the times I've done exactly what God has asked of me? If this person can get in, in spite of having none of that, what does it say about all of those things? It means that they don't separate you from the riffraff. It means they don't separate you even from your enemies. It means all of the good works that you have piled up doesn't get you one inch closer to God's approval in and of themselves. It is only because God says, in spite of all of your unrighteousness and in spite of all your self-righteousness, I love you and you are mine and I embrace you, and that's how you get in. It's so different from anything that we could conceive of, anything that we would come up with to say, God is not beholden to me because of anything I've done, no matter how good I am, I can't get leverage over God. The only leverage I have over God is Jesus and the covenants that he makes with Jesus on behalf of me and with me. There's a malignant Messiah. The religious people saw it and they wanted to crucify him, get him out of the system, excise him, cut him off. What about a benign Messiah? How do benign tumors work? I'm no medical doctor, obviously, you can correct me afterwards, but benign tumors are benign in that they're not spreading, they're not metastasizing, they're not growing from your liver into your lung and so forth. They're benign. It's a little bit of a misleading term because it can be very uncomfortable and you may need to have surgery, but they're sequestered. They're in one part of the body. They're not infecting the rest of the, the body. They're not threatening the other parts of the system, Right? If you have a benign tumor in one part, your heart probably still works fine, and your lungs work fine, your liver works fine. They go on doing what they should be doing and This must have been how Pilate saw Jesus, not because he was secular rather than religious, because the Roman Empire was built upon the system of worship to the Roman gods they were valid, The Roman Empire saw itself as validated by the gods, but apparently. Pilate didn't really grasp who was in front of him. Jesus was just this harmless eccentric within the Jewish system. He bared no threat to the Roman system. You see, he was sequestered over there. He was benign because he was only in one part of society, not the whole system. He was just a garden variety guru to Pilate. And frankly, this is how many of us see him. This is how our culture sees Jesus he's interesting. He's got some good things to say. He preaches on love and justice and helping the poor and being a good person. But tearing your clothes, putting him on trial, that seems a little severe. That seems a little narrow-minded. And so we approve of him at a distance. We say, yeah, I can get on board with a good bit of what he has to say. And that's how it was, in a sense, for Pilate, because Christianity was still new to Rome at that time, And Pilate is still wrestling with who is this figure in front of me and why does the Jewish establishment want him dead so badly and why should I care? Christianity wasn't a threat to Rome at that point. Jesus was benign and harmless, but it wasn't long before they caught on. It wasn't long before they realized what Jesus was actually saying and what he was claiming. And as this cancer spread, his people spread with this message it became more of a threat, and Rome became a very dangerous place for Christians. I quoted Jacques Ellul in your bulletin. For Romans, nascent Christianity was not at all a new religion. It was anti-religion. What the first Christian generations were putting on trial was not just the imperial religion, as is often said, but every religion in the known world. Other teachers, other philosophers point to the truth. There it is. This is the truth. Other religions, other philosophers, other teachers say, I have a pathway to truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. I am the truth. It can't be benign, it's everything or nothing. And so maybe, as much as we hate, their actions, and their tactics, maybe the Jewish council was responding with more discernment than Pilate had. They knew what was, what was at stake. He was putting their religion on trial, and they knew it. They discerned Jesus better than Pilate did. Pilate wasn't being altruistic. He likely either didn't understand or just didn't care and wanted to be done with Jesus. Maybe the Jewish council was responding with more discernment And maybe they're responding to Jesus with more integrity than you or me. In the Gospels, Pilate's response is sort of an an outlier. And it's probably because he didn't fully grasp Jesus' claims. In contrast to those throughout the Gospel whose response to Jesus is either utter terror or adoration. It's either murderous rage or it's worship. You see people either rushing away from Jesus, wanting to get as far away from him as possible, or rushing to him to throw their lives before him and say, what must I do to be saved? Those are the two responses that this account says are valid. You can reject him, you can accept him, but don't mollify him. Don't patronize him. Don't just approve of Jesus. Mild approval is never a valid response. And for all of us, when we encounter Jesus and when he says, I am the truth, when he says, I am the judge of the world, it's malignant. It's cancerous. It gets into our system. It must and changes us. Every religion and every non-religion is on trial in these words, in Jesus' claims. If we have integrity Integrity, if we're looking from the outside in and we're trying to, want to figure out, is Jesus who he says he is? Can I become a Christian? Can I believe? Integrity would say to deal with Jesus Jesus on his own terms, that he claims to be the Messiah, son of man, which means God incarnate, far bigger than anything we bargained for. So don't come to Jesus and simply co-opt him into your already existing belief system. Integrity for those of us who are sitting on the inside, who are part of the church. If we're hearing this as a Christian, as a religious person, then the challenge is, in fact, quite similar. Rejection or our whole life is brought to him. Either deny him or say, everything I have is yours. You see, it's, it's antithetical to say, I'm a Christian, and therefore I drop in the church from time to time. I'm a Christian and therefore I serve from time to time. I'm a Christian and therefore I give mercy to those who I perceive are, deser- are deserving of it. Jesus says, no, none of that. Don't patronize me. I am the truth. Nothing or everything. Either he's crazy, he's a liar, or he's who he says he is. And we must deal with him on his own terms and in, approach him on his own terms. We see the response of integrity that says Jesus is a malignant Messiah. We see another response that says he's a benign Messiah. But we see finally what Jesus is offering himself in a little bit different way. We see a sitting Messiah. Whenever we go to a hotel with a pool, our kids want me to get in and swim with them. And I don't mind swimming, but I don't like cold water. And cold water to me is just anywhere that's below room temperature. I don't like that. And so what I've found, though, is that it makes it much more difficult if I go to the edge of the pool and kind of tip, you know, stick my toe in or if I just kind of try to walk down the steps really slowly and let different parts of my body get accustomed to the water. That doesn't work. So what I've found is when I finally agree to go swimming with my kids is I don't look at the water. I mean, I look at the water. I don't test the water. I don't see what temperature it is. I just jump in. And it stings and it hurts and it's a surprise. But you get in it. And that's what Jesus is saying is that nothing or everything, and when we say everything, when we dive into the pool, no matter what it, how cold it is, no matter what it's going to feel like, what kind of a Messiah do we have to encounter? Verse 69. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Seated. What does that mean? As far as I know, we don't read any time in the Old Testament of a priest sitting except in dereliction of duty. There's one um, incident where that happens, and it's in dereliction of duty. The only time the priest is not supposed to sit, he's not talked about as sitting. There weren't seats in the tabernacle, and this was implying that the priest's work was never done. And we read in Hebrews 10, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Sitting is an act of completion. It's the act of one who has finished their work and now sits down because their work is done. In this scene, God is in the dock. He's the one who is on trial. Jesus, who has every right to judge the world and render capital punishment judgments upon anyone, instead submits himself to capital punishment on behalf of the very persons who are accusing him. The judge steps down from the bench and lays down his life so that they, so that we, so that you and I The guilty parties can go free. The writer of Hebrews picks up it two chapters later. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, meaning Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Jesus, as the new high priest, comes. He goes to the cross. He dies. He rises again. He offers himself as a sacrifice. And he sits. He sits down because it's over. It's over. The trial is over. And if you're in him, your trial is over. Stop putting then other people on trial. Stop putting yourself on trial. Be free. It's over. The only time you want a malignant cancer, one that will eat you from the inside out, is when it's one that will actually make you whole that will eat away all of the terrible things about your life, all the ways that you have put barriers in front of yourself and hurdles to God. The malignant cancer of Jesus will eat those away and says, no, come to God through me because I am the truth. This type of cancer, Jesus as a malignant cancer, will eat you from the inside out but make you whole, will give you life, will give you new life, will give you salvation. There's a story about a little boy who I totally relate to because I did a lot of silly, reckless things growing up and had to go back and apologize and pay for things I'd broken and so forth. And this, this boy accidentally kills his grandmother's beloved pet duck. He accidentally hits the duck with a rock from his slingshot, and the boy didn't think anyone saw him do it. And so he buries the duck in the backyard and doesn't tell a soul. A little later, his sister says, come on in, I want to tell you something. And she says, I saw what you did with the duck. And whenever it was the sister's turn to wash the dishes or take out the garbage or wash the car, she would whisper into his ear, remember the duck. And then the little boy would do whatever his sister said. But there's always a a limit to that sort of thing, right? Right? You always reach a breaking point. There's always at some point when someone says, remember the duck, you say, forget it, I'm done, and I'll handle the consequences. And that's what this boy did, finally. He had had it, and he goes to his grandmother and faces the judge. And trembling in tears, he confessed what he had done, and to his surprise, she hugs him and embraces him and thanks him for his honesty and says, I was standing at the kitchen sink, and I saw the whole thing. I forgave you then, and I was just wondering when you were going to get tired of your sister's blackmail and come to me. If you're tired of the manipulation of the duck, then you're free. If you're tired of the manipulation of other people to get you doing stuff and you finally go to God and say, I confess, I can't do it anymore, I'm not living up to the standards that they have put upon me or that I have put upon me or that you're put upon me, that you've put upon me. I'm not going to be manipulated by the duck anymore. I want to be free. What we see throughout the Scripture, what we see in the Gospel, in this passage, that God sees everything that you do. But if you follow Jesus instead of a religious system, if you place your hope in His work, in His life, in His death and resurrection, rather than in your own good deeds, you can be free because you can know you're forgiven. And now you're dangerous just like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would take you as you are, that we would let you be who you want to be in our lives, that even when it's threatening and scary and anxiety-ridden, I pray that you would help us to take that step of faith, knowing that you can be trusted because you were the judge who gave up your own life for us, the convicted. I pray that we would rest in that. I pray as we confess our faith, and as we come to the table, that you would further enlighten us to how that can take shape in our actual lived lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.